Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 30, or 42. Genesis 42. We're going to begin in 42 uh, and make our way all the way through 45 today. But before we do, we want to offer a word of prayer. Would you take just a moment and bow with me? God, on this day when we um, are mindful of mothers and motherhood, we are mindful that means something special and yet different to every one of us. So in this moment when we are collected together and you have our mind's attention and our heart's affection as, as we are gathered vulnerably before you, we acknowledge, Lord, some are filled with such gratitude for their mothers. And we give thanks for mothers. And there are some in, in this room for whom that is a difficult thing to do. Perhaps because the relationship is strained. Or they are distant. Or perhaps have even gone on to be with you. There are those in this room who perhaps struggle even more so because they long to be mothers and so far cannot be. And Lord, yet there are some relationships in this room that are motherly between persons who share no DNA whatsoever. And yet in the mystery of all those dynamics and connections with one another, we, we are mindful of your motherliness over us. You are a good parent, that you mother us with love so much so that you nurture, you cultivate, you protect, you defend, you raise up, you demonstrate, you model for us what it looks like to be who it is that you have birthed us to be. So now as your children are gathered here with one another and as we open up your word, our prayer is quite simple, show us what you see that we cannot, that we may leave this place stronger, strong, like a mother. In your name we pray, amen. So today we are continuing our study of Joseph, and I've got to tell you, I am delighting in seeing the sanctuary seems to getting, be getting more and more colorful as this series goes on. You're wearing bright colors and multicolors, and I just dig it. I dig it. You're looking good. But today we're in the fourth conversation, the fourth in the series, and we've been with Joseph. And Joseph, this character, man, this person who at the early age wore a multicolored coat, but it was only the beginning. It was a demonstration of an inner multicolored vibrancy. 
And we've been watching that on his interior life, from the time he was young, even his father recognized it. There was something so alive, he was able to see things that perhaps others couldn't see. He was a dreamer. He could dream. And sometimes when you share your dream, not everybody can interpret it the way you do. And he shared his dream with family, and they rejected him. And he was sold into slavery. And in Egypt, he worked as a slave and yet was trapped. Someone tried to seduce him, lied about him, and sent him to prison. But even while in prison, that inner aliveness, the subversive love of God, was awake and kept raising him up every time life seemed to knock him down and all of the circumstances that seemed to give him reason to believe in nothing were actually the very fertile ground for his belief in everything. Last week we ended with him working in the palace of Pharaoh. He was in jail, and yet he heard that Pharaoh had a dream that no one could understand. He interpreted the dream, you'll recall, a dream in which there were soon to come seven years of prosperity and abundance, and then seven years to follow in the region of famine and desperation and difficulty. And because he helped Pharaoh organize the government, the empire around those dreams so that they might survive. He was given a job. He was given the most important job in the country, in the empire, second only to Pharaoh. He had authority over everyone. And this is where we pick up today. But all along his journey, we have been watching, we've been watching a key verse become our anchor for this conversation. A verse that only millennia later would be revealed for us to understand. It's from Romans chapter 8, a verse that seems to embody the life of Joseph. For we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. Now that phrase that we've been using as our anchor, all things work together there are two words in that phrase that are curious to me, and we've got to set that out before we get anywhere today. Those two words, work together. Let's go back one. Those two words, work together. Now, in English, you and I have those two words, work together, but in Greek, it's only one word. The word here is sunergeo, sunergeo, and it means, literally, to synergize. It means to bring into play seemingly disconnected things so that it creates a greater thing than those disconnected things, right? It's where we get our word synergy or synergism. In fact, synergy, well-defined, is this, the working together of various elements to produce a result greater than the sum of those elements, <laughs> which is a really complicated way to say all things work together now you may know that verse and you may be able to quote it you you may have it memorized but my question to you is this today do you know that all things work together for good for those who love god not do you do you rationally know it not do you believe it but do you know from experience that all of the seemingly disconnected 
moments, the sufferings, the, the struggles, the anguish of your life, do you know from experience that they ultimately work together? See, faith does this. Faith backs up and widens the camera angle to look at the long arc of our lives and not fixate upon those momentary, episodic moments that seem to be filled with either great joy or great despair, but rather backs up to look at the long arc to recognize and believe that by the end, sooner or later, all things in their ghetto work together. Joseph demonstrates perhaps more beautifully than any other place in the Bible of what it looks like for all things to work together. We're going to begin reading in chapter 42, verse 1. Hear these words. When Jacob learned, that's Father Jacob, right? When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at one another? I have heard, he said, that there is grain in Egypt. Go down and buy some grain there that we may live and not die. So ten, ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he feared that harm might come to him. Thus the sons of Israel were among the other people who came to buy grain, for the famine had reached the land of Canaan. Let's stop there for just a moment. When we're told that the famine had reached the land of Canaan, that's code for the famine had gotten really bad. See, last week we talked a little bit about geography and meteorology, right? Last week we talked about how in Egypt, the great Nile, which begins in the heart of Africa around the equator, fans out in Egypt in this glorious uh, delta that feeds into the Mediterranean, making it rich and fertile in every imaginable way. But when there is a famine, every year there is a, a predictable meteorological uh, occurrence. Not only does the delta get uh, the, the water from the Nile, but it floods because once a year it receives so much rain from the outlying areas, places like Canaan, that the area floods and they harness the flooding and they make use of it for their economy. But when we're told that there is a famine in Egypt, but a famine has reached its way to Canaan, that means none of the rains that are expected from Canaan had come in a, quite a long time. That means if it's, if it's famine in Egypt, it's really famine in Canaan, where Joseph's family still lives. So Jacob sends his brothers, but you notice it says he sends 10 of his brothers. Joseph was one of 12. There was 12 minus Joseph, that's 11, minus Benjamin. Benjamin is the youngest brother of all. And Benjamin was the only brother that Joseph had that was his full biological brother. Remember they have, their mother was Rachel. Do you remember Rachel? Remember her story? Back when we talked patriarchs and matriarchs, we learned that Rachel was one who Jacob loved with his whole heart. He had four wives, ultimately, but this one he loved with his whole heart. It was love at first sight. Everything in Jacob was crazy about Rachel. 
And so the problem with Rachel, however, is that she had a hard time getting pregnant. It took a long time. Eventually she did get pregnant and give birth to Joseph. And then she couldn't get pregnant for a long, long time again. But then in his old age, Rachel gave birth to Benjamin. But the bad news is that she died in childbirth. So here we are in a famine, and Jacob says, yes, it's time to go down, sons, and, and gather some grain, gather resources in Egypt, but you're not taking Benjamin because Benjamin was his only living link to the woman of his heart. You know, we do that sometimes. I mean, not just parents. Parents do that for sure. Something happens with one child, and we tend to overreact with the other one. Somebody does something good, we expect so much more from the other one. Somebody does something bad, we somehow blame or overprotect or overindulge, right? The other one. And it's not just parents, but all of us. When we lose something with one hand, we tend to hold on tighter to what we have in the other. Jacob was just doing what you and I would do. He's holding on to the only living link to the love of his life. So they all go down to Egypt, but what they don't know is that Joseph is the man. So we pick up the story in verse 9 or verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. It was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Now when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And although Joseph had recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Joseph also remembered the dreams that he had dreamed about them. This is a fascinating moment, really. So much suspense. It's the stuff good movies are made of. There they are before him. And the text says that they don't recognize him. That's because he shaved bald. Like every good noble in the Egyptian empire. Shaved head. And by the way, I also learned this week, fake goatee made of, ham, made of uh, horse's hair. Now that's just weird. <laughs> But it was the thing, horse hair goatee. And, and so they look at him and they don't recognize him, plus he's speaking in an Egyptian dialect and not their home language. They don't recognize, but he sees them. And the text says, not only does he recognize them, but he remembers, because there they are doing what you do when you come before a noble. You bow in obsessence, and he's seeing them bow down, and it triggers a memory of a dream he had about his brothers bowing down. And here it is, it's happening. But it's not a happy memory because he remembers in that dream that it's in the bowing down to him that triggered all of those series of events that were filled with pain and anguish and conflict. And so he overreacts and he treats them like strangers. This gets me thinking a little bit today because we know this story is something about forgiveness, right? It has something to do about forgiving those who have offended us and, and, and harmed us in the past. But I think sometimes if we are on the journey of forgiving the offenders of our past, it begins with asking ourselves a significant question. 
What do we see when we see the offenders of our past? What do we see in them when we look at them? Do we only see their offense? Do we only recognize the thing that they did wrong for us? Or is there more? Joseph was not ready to forgive because all he could see still was the pain. So he says to them, yes, you're spies. They said, no, 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 we're not spies. No, really, we're just hungry. He says, no, the only way to prove that you're not spies is this. Do you have any other family? And they very awkwardly say, yes, we have this brother. Well, we had two, but one is not with us anymore. And the other one is young. He's at home, and we have a father. And Joseph said, the only way to prove that you are not spies is to go home and get your younger brother. Bring your younger brother before me, and if you don't bring him before me, then you will never see me again. He says, here's what you must do. I'm going to keep everybody except one of you in jail, and you go and bring your brother. So he puts them all in jail. Then three days later, he has a change of heart, and Joseph says, I'll tell you what, instead, let's do this. I'm going to keep one of you, and the rest of you go back and get your younger brother. So he keeps Simeon in jail. And there's something powerful that unfolds when he says, this is the plan. I'll keep Simeon and the rest of you can go. They begin to talk to one another and they don't know that he hears and understands what they're saying. Let's pick up uh, the text in verse 21. They said to one another, alas, we are paying the penalty for what we did to our brother. Keep in mind, they're speaking in their home language. They don't think that this guy who is second in command of Pharaoh can even understand their language. We're paying the penalty for what we did to our brother, Joseph. We saw his anguish when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. That is why this anguish has come upon us. Then Reuben answered them, didn't I tell you not to wrong the boy? But you wouldn't listen. So now there comes this reckoning from his, or for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them since he had been speaking through an interpreter. He turned away from them and wept. And then he returned and spoke to them. It's a powerful moment. They think that they're, they're speaking safely, but he's overhearing. But what is he overhearing? He's not overhearing just common language like, did you pack the thing and did you get the carry-on? we got to go back home now. But rather, he hears them regret. And maybe for the first time in Joseph's life, he hears part of the story that he never knew took place. All he knew is that the entire family plotted against him and got rid of him. But now for the first time, he's hearing that there's regret, that maybe they weren't all in this together maybe there was some complexity to it that he wasn't aware of at first and something begins to penetrate his heart because we're told right after this that as they go about their way they keep one of the brothers in jail Simeon and as they go on their way Joseph does something curious he sees and his heart is beginning to to open before them he's got to keep his mask he's got to keep his facade but he tells his steward stuff some money in their pack it's, this one's not a trap later there's a trap coming but this one is out of an attempt to give provisions to his family here just put some money in their pack they're going to need it on the way home and so they stuff some money in their pack and an interesting thing unfolds on the way back to canaan let's pick up the story 
They loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. When one of them, this is verse 26, and when one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw money on top of his sack. He said to his brothers, Oh, my money has been put back here. Here it is in my sack. And at this they lost heart and turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done? See, what I find fascinating here is that Joseph, even though he's not quite ready to forgive, even though he's not quite ready to say, hey, guys, it's me, he demonstrates what all of us go through when we are struggling to forgive. We may not be there emotionally, but sometimes it may help to work our way there. He, through an act of compassion, slips money in their sacks, not because he's okay with everything that they did, but because, well, they need it, and mercy can sometimes pave the way to forgiveness. And I wonder if some of us who may be struggling with forgiveness need to consider the possibility that letting compassion run through you to the one who offended you doesn't mean that you have to feel good about it right now. Doesn't mean that you say everything's okay. Doesn't even mean that you're ready to forgive, but it might crack open the possibility of life and reconciliation. So he stuffs this money in, and, and, and the guys on their way home, they stop over at the rest stop, and they feed the donkeys, they notice it, and then they're really troubled because they're like, oh my gosh, the, the, the Pharaoh is going to think that we stole the money. Pharaoh is going to think that we got away with, with highway robbery here. And they struggle, even though they had been given an act of mercy. They couldn't see it as mercy because they were so guilty. They dealt with such guilt over all those years because of what they had done that they couldn't see this. Was, this was an act of God's grace and providence. And this is... This is how guilt works in our lives. When you carry around a load of guilt on your shoulders for whatever reason, and you go through life shamed or you go through life guilty, it affects the lens through which you see all of life. Even if somebody tries to do something nice for you, you can't see it as such because you feel so guilty about the thing that you hadn't fixed yet. And I wonder if somebody here needs to hear some, some good news, and that is when we yield our life to Jesus Christ, do you know what the whole crucifixion and resurrection of Christ is all about? It means that in the cross of Jesus, all of our guilt and all of our shame, all the burden of the guilt that we had carried because of our sin is crucified. That means that we are free from the, from the guilt of our own uh, poor choices, our own mistakes, our own sin. You and I have been talking about this Romans 8, 28, for in all things God works together. But that chapter, verse uh, 28, is part of chapter 8, which begins in the very first verse of that chapter this way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It might be that on this Mother's Day, the only thing that you need to hear, mothers, daughters, sons, fathers. It may be that the thing you came to hear is this, there is now no longer any condemnation in Jesus Christ. That may be a verse that you need to write down and stick on your rearview mirror in your car. Put it on your mirror in the bathroom. Put it on the rearview mirror in your car so that when you look up to see what's behind you, you are reminded that you are now no longer guilty of whatever it was in your past.
Somebody may need to hear what Paul said about it in 2 Corinthians. He said these words, So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away and everything, see, has become new. But Joseph's brothers struggled because they had not been set free by that good truth. Their guilt was so heavy they couldn't even see the mercy that had been stuffed in their carry-on. So they continue back home, and they make it back to their father Jacob, and they say to Jacob, ah, bad news. We got some grain, but we lost another brother. And Jacob loses it. He says, what, you're killing me, literally. He says, you're killing me. He says, here I am in my old age, and I've lost one son, Joseph, and now I've lost another, Simeon, and you're telling me the only way back to Egypt is to give you a third, to, to take Benjamin with you? No. No. And the chapter ends with Jacob saying, mm-mm, not going to happen. And then you turn the page to chapter 33, and the very first verse of that chapter says things were getting worse. The famine got more severe. So the oldest son, Judah, prevails upon Jacob and says, Father, it's really bad. We're going to have to go back and get more food. You're going to have to let us take Benjamin. And they go back and forth, back and forth, and ultimately Jacob says, okay. He sends his brothers with Benjamin this time back to Joseph. They make it back to Egypt, and Joseph sees them coming. He doesn't recognize their faces, but knows it's them. And so he tells all of his subordinates, prepare a lunch, prepare a, a feast. And he sends his stewards out to his brothers and tells them, hey, the second in command wants you to come in his home and eat. So wash, and we will wash your feet, and you will come in his house and dine. And at that, they were terrified. And they began to say to themselves, you can read about it later in chapter 33, they began to say about themselves, ah, we're goners. Yep, he heard about the money, he, he, now he sees us coming, he's going to bring us in, and we're all just doomed. So he goes into the house, the brothers, and as soon as they get in the house, they talk to the first butler they come to. And they begin to just blather about with the mouth saying, oh, you got to understand, we didn't do it. It wasn't our fault. We found this money. We thought we'd pay. See, we looked for the receipt, but the receipt got lost in the console on the way back. We don't know how to prove it, but we didn't do this. And the steward said, chill. I know. We're good. You paid me. That money must have come from your God. So they chill. And they set up to eat. And then there's this powerful moment. Joseph comes in. He comes in and they do what you do when you're a guest among nobles. They stand up and in order from oldest to youngest, whose name is? From oldest to youngest, they bow before him. And I'm, I'm imagining Joseph here and there's Judah, there's Reuben. There's, and, and as they bow, the very last one to bow in the back is his long lost brother, Benjamin whom he loves, his only tie to the mother who is gone. And the text says that he was overwhelmed, overwhelmed with emotion. And he leaves the room, an awkward exit, and the text says he leaves the room and weeps openly. See, something's happening in Joseph because now he's beginning to see that despite all of the seemingly disconnected 
parts of his life, all of the things that he thought he had lost were now coming together. In ways that he could have never imagined in all of this, in this context, in this capacity, but there they are. And it's all aligning like I could have never predicted. And he's overwhelmed. So he gets himself together and they have dinner and, and they eat separately, see, the Egyptians on one end and, the, and the, the Hebrews on the other. But Joseph keeps sending like seconds and thirds and fourths and fifths down to Benjamin. It's great. It's like the, the give it to Mikey, he'll eat it, right? It's that, it's that to an extreme. And the chapter closes. But as it closes, here's what happens. Joseph says, very well, go home in peace. And he gives them all the grain. And then once again, without telling him, he slips him a Benjamin, you know, in the sack on the way home. But that's not all he slips. He says to himself, this time I won't let Benjamin get away from me. So he plants a silver cup in the bag of Benjamin. And they all go on their way. They're like, hey, that went well. I thought that went well. Did that go well? Yeah, and they're on their way back home to Canaan. And halfway back, Joseph's men catch up with him. And they say, how could you do this to the second in command? How could you do this to Pharaoh and the empire? You have stolen from, from him. And, and the oldest say, no, we, we didn't take anything. In fact, if you can find anything here that we took without your permission, or that you can, you can just you can kill him. And so one at a time, the oldest puts down his bag. See, nothing. Next one puts down his bag. See, nothing. They get down to Benjamin, and Benjamin's like, hey, look what I found. <laughs> and so they take Benjamin back. But this time, even though the older brothers could have gone on back home, they don't go back home because, no, we'd rather go back to Egypt and die than face Dad. So they go to before Joseph, and they make this appeal. And Joseph says, no, we're good, it's cool. I'm just going to keep Benjamin forever and ever, amen. But you go on home and live a good life. And then there comes the speech from the oldest brother, Judah. It may be the most beautiful speech given in all the Bible of advocacy and intercession. And he begs. He begs Joseph. And he says, you don't understand what's happening. My father has been through it. My father has been through more than you could possibly imagine. He had this wife. He was crazy about her. She's gone. He had this son. He was crazy about him. He's gone. And now here's the only other one. If we go home and tell him that he's gone, it will kill him. It will kill him. This will tear the family apart. And Joseph couldn't contain it. And so we pick up in chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. It is, is my father alive? But his brothers could not answer him. They were so dismayed at his presence. Can we stop there for just a moment? Here's the big reveal. And it's not through a translator anymore. It's in their own home dialogue. 
or dialect. It's me. I am Joseph. And the brothers are so shocked by what they see that, that one scholar put it this way. It's almost the same as the post-resurrection shock of the disciples. The first time they encounter the risen Christ because here the brothers are standing before one who was dead and yet lives. And he says, no, it's really me. And he continues with verse 4. He goes on, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. Or like John, gospel reports, Jesus said to Thomas, Come, take your hand and place it in my side. It's, I am alive. It is me. He says, Come close to me. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold in Egypt, and do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. And then here comes what may be the most important verses in the entire book of Genesis, the entire Joseph story right here. He said, For God sent me before you to preserve life, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. It was not you. But do you, do you see what's happening in Joseph? For the first time in his life, for the very first time in his life, he looks at all the pieces of his pain and all those disconnected moments that seem to be nothing but one relentless um, moment of suffering and struggle after the next. And, and here he is with all of his family before him. And he realizes what God has been doing through all of it. He says, in ways that you can't understand, brothers, God has been up to something. Because yes, there was some family drama. Yes, early on there was some dynamic between you and me and between our mothers and between my father and your mother. There was some drama, but besides all that, watch. While that's going on over here, way over here without any of our knowledge, meteorologically speaking and geographically speaking, the world is primed for a famine that's coming. And only God knew that everything that was happening here was setting up the possibility that alongside everything happening here, there may be a way to create life where only death seems to reign. God is synergizing, working together all the things that we cannot possibly understand in order to bring about a good that we could not possibly create. That's good news. And I don't know where it is exactly that you find yourself in this journey, but my suspicion is somewhere along the way, Joseph is our brother. Because somewhere along the way, you and I will experience what seems to be absolutely random, no good experiences that have nothing to do with the big picture. But Joseph says, no, it has everything to do. Even if you can't comprehend it or trace it or understand it, there's so many components moving in this synergism of God's love that you are being pulled together with more dynamics than you could have ever imagined. And God has got this under control. 
May that bring you peace today. It all comes together. Let's pray. God, we are grateful to you for this truth, this possibility that, that you're doing something even when we can't trace it, that you're up to something even when we don't understand it, that your, your presence and your action is always moving us toward reconciliation and love and grace and life. Will you show somebody this day how to simply receive it? In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.